0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh and this is The Emerald Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens. The podcast where we explore an ever changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald All that's happening on this green jewel in space. Those who know me know that my love for the writings and visionings of J.R.R. R. Tolkien runs deep, and that may be the biggest understatement I've made yet on this podcast. I also am deeply interested, as you may have gathered, in exploring the mythic mind, the truths in the myths, and how through the myths we can start to get a sense of something long buried in the human psyche, something that used to perhaps be more at the forefront, the state of vision, wonder, and imagination the vision of a numinous, interconnected world that the myths transport us into, that perhaps was a state humans used to be able to traverse with a lot more facility and regularity, and that perhaps has increasing relevance for us in the world today. I had never exactly thought of Tolkien in terms of this shamanistic worldview. I had never really thought of Homer's The Odyssey in that way either. So I was surprised to find Robert Tyndall's book, The Shamanic Odyssey, Homer, Tolkien, and the Visionary Experience. When I opened it and began reading, I found a whole lot of connecting threads. Threads I think my listeners will love, even if they are not necessarily Tolkien or Homer fans. Because the connecting thread has to do with the visionary experience. What it is, how it has been lost or sidelined, and how to reclaim it again. (laughs) Robert Tyndall is a professor of English, a writer, and a classical guitarist. He has studied Amazonian healing traditions for many decades and leads groups to the Amazon to encounter these traditions. He's the author of The Shamanic Odyssey, The Jaguar That Roams the Mind, and Sacred Soil, Biochar and the Regeneration of Earth, about the meticulous pre-Columbian cultivation of the Amazon Basin. In the shamanic odyssey, Tyndall speaks of a once-universal mode of consciousness in which reality is understood to be pervaded and structured by powerful numinous forces and presences that are rendered to the human imagination as the divinized figures and narratives of myth. Tolkien himself spoke of the loss of this worldview. He said, You look at trees and call them trees, and probably you do not think twice about the word, You call a star a star and think nothing more of it. But you must remember that these words, tree, star, were, in their original forms, names given to these objects by people with very different views from yours. To you, a tree is simply a vegetable organism, and a star simply a ball of inanimate matter moving along a mathematical course. But the first men to talk of trees and stars saw things very differently. To them, the world was alive with mythological beings. They saw the stars as living silver, bursting into flame, in answer to the eternal music. They saw the sky as a jeweled tent, and the earth as the womb whence all living things have come. To them, the whole of creation was myth-woven and elf-patterned. Today on the Emerald, Homer, Tolkien, and the Heart of the Visionary Experience... A Conversation with Robert (music) Tyndall. I guess to start, when people hear of Homer or of Tolkien, I don't think that shamanism is necessarily the first word that comes to mind. And I'm I'm interested, what led you to make this connection?
1: Because I view shamanism as a kind of subset of a larger worldview, or model of reality. And that's just sort of the animistic worldview. It's been the normative experience for our species, and I suspect for animals and plants and other beings as well, to not have a hard and fast boundary between themselves and the rest of the cosmos. So, you know, there is no dualistic Cartesian worldview among our ancestors. And for them, it's clear they had a healthy sense of self but they didn't have a fixation on being just human. You know, we have a way of dismissing the animistic worldview as a projection of internal human characteristics onto a dead mechanical cosmos. But that was not and is not the indigenous experience of the world. Instead, it's, it's an engagement with the sentience, awareness, wisdom of the rest of a living cosmos. And it's just as pragmatic it's just as simple and direct as looking at a red light before we cross the street, speaking on our cell phone, turning on the ignition of our car. It, it's very empirically based. It's just as sensory based. It's just as pragmatic. It has just as real outcomes. And it's wonderful. It's marvelous. This is a worldview which I, I don't want to idealize, right. but it has the virtue of filling the world with neighbors.
0: It has an empathetic quality to it.
1: Absolutely. And so um, as I've come to understand shamanism during my years practicing down in South America with the vegetalistas there and in the Native American church up here in the north, shamanism is a sort of focused, laser-attuned working within that larger worldview of animism.
0: This animistic view, this view of the living, breathing cosmos the shamanic mind, as we could call it. How do you see that present in Homer and Tolkien?
1: Well, Middle Earth has ants in it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it has walking trees with this profound depth of memory and and awareness. As one senses a redwood, an old-growth redwood tree is whenever you approach one. You know, Tolkien is just kind of giving mythic, character and and setting in motion a fundamental awareness that we are in constant communication with the other beings around us, and we can access that. And for indigenous people, of course, they have much less of a barrier to leap over than we do. In Tolkien, we have wolves. Birds are aware, but it's really the trees where Tolkien plunges us in. You know, most deeply to that that sense of, you know, we talk about the uh, wood wide web now mm. of how really clear what indigenous people knew for millennia, that the the very ground beneath our feet is a network of communication and mutual support and warfare and capitalistic wheeling and dealing with the fungi in it, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there's just a tremendous brain neural network beneath our feet and and the trees are aware in that way that Tolkien depicts the ends of long, slow, you know, abiding awareness.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because I think there's a tendency to lump Tolkien together, obviously in what's called fantasy and fantasy implies this certain like unreality. And some people are like, well, why should I, you know, why should I care about Tolkien? It's like this kind of Fantastical world of goblins and elves and this kind of thing that has no bearing on my day to day life and I've always seen it as visionary. Like he was, he was, yeah. he was describing places that he had been in his consciousness that he had seen and forces that have a resonance to them um, because uh, they're in many ways real.
1: I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And what what Tolkien was out to do, not many. People know this because you kind of got to dig into the scholarship to get to it, but he wanted to reclaim or even resurrect the uh, pre-Christian narratives, mythic worldview Mm -hmm. um, of the uh, Nordic people, especially. He was very drawn along with C.S. Lewis to the literatures and the worldview of the North. And, you know, all of this while at the same time being a a profoundly devout Catholic. And so in his work, you have the finest kind of uh, true Catholicism, where the whole experience of my ancestors is honored and recognized as deeply valid. And there's grief for the loss of this worldview and, and the coming of the age of man, you know, the kind of withering away of uh, the realm of fairy. Mm. Um, And, of course, the ecological devastation of the planet, which Tolkien, back in his time, was keenly aware of. And so Tolkien has an extraordinary, encompassing vision of the cosmos, which is completely in tune with the best of Catholicism, but also, you know, the thing that, That I was exploring in him was his attunement as well with the indigenous animistic world. There's something really profound going on here where instead of being one of these axe-wielding, you know, saints that were cutting down the sacred groves, he wants to protect them.
0: Yeah, and he, you know, for his time to present a view in which that which is good is that which is green and growing was Mm -hmm. really revolutionary. Um, you mentioned fairy and there's this great quote in the book about breaking out of the iron ring of the familiar into the realm of fairy Um, and he said that that entry into the realm of fairy was as essential to the health and complete functioning of the human being as sunlight is for physical life how do you see this?
1: that iron ring of habit uh, of the familiar for me is lowering of your IQ. I find that the more that we constructed an iron ring of familiar around our lives where we don't allow in the intelligence of the cosmos. Mm. And for me, that listening, you know, that setting aside of the habitual mind and encountering that sense of wonder, talking had an interesting way of describing it. He used an old English term, "ruth," which is both love and sorrow combined. It's like this piercing nostalgia, mm. which is the nostos that the Odyssey is. You know, the the Odyssey is a returning home. It's a song of going into the land of the dead and, and coming home again. Mm. And for Tolkien, the whole experience of fairy, of that enrapturing beauty, at the heart of things that we need so profoundly to grow it's the nutrients of the soil of the psyche for me i atrophy without it which is why i practice meditation and why i've been an apprentice in these plant medicine traditions for so many years now because we need fairy you know we need to be able to adapt we we need that sense of communion in order to make good decisions in this realm for ourselves and, and uh, for our children and the other species that we share this planet with. So, you know, I think that beyond that primal need for to wonder, you know, Tolkien said that there were two uh, fundamental human desires that fantasy fulfilled. And I do think when he talked about fantasy, he was speaking of not just a literature, but also a state of consciousness and experience mm-hmm. as well. You know, there are, You can't really disentangle them in Tolkien. We not only need that experience of a living, vibrant cosmos for our own well-being, but we also need it for our process of adaptation and attunement as a species. To grow, we need it. That's what nourishes us.
0: I want to read a couple of quotes from Tolkien on fairy. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there. Shoreless seas and stars uncounted. Beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril. Both joy and sorrow is sharp as swords. Fairy represents a breaking out from the iron ring of the familiar, a constant awareness of the world that exists beyond this ring. More strongly, it represents love, a love and respect for all things. Things seen in this light will be respected, and they will also appear delightful, beautiful, wonderful, even glorious. Fairy might be said to represent imagination, Aesthetic, exploratory, and receptive, and artistic, inventive, dynamic. This compound of awareness of a limitless world outside our domestic parish, a love for the things in it, and the desire for wonder, marvels both perceived and conceived. This fairy is as necessary for the health and complete functioning of the human being as is sunlight for physical life. This vision of wonder, the animist worldview of numinous, vibrant energy, exchange between human beings and the plant and animal world, also finds expression in Homer's Odyssey. We moved on to talk about the Odyssey, and how, in Tyndall's view, Odysseus acts as a bridge between the old shamanic traditions of the Mediterranean and the coming modernity of Greek civilization, and one story in particular which encapsulates the point of separation between the ancient and modern mind.
1: You know, when I lived in the rainforest, I kept noticing among the people who lived there and and had the shamanic worldview that they would describe phenomena and experiences they'd had in ways that were really evocative of uh, the ancient Celts and the ancient Greeks, who I'd spent a lot of time studying at the university. And that was kind of the origin of the shamanic odyssey, the, the book that inspired you to connect with me, because I was just compelled to try to connect together the dots. How is it possible that in the depths of the rainforest, my partner at the time, Susana Bustos, and I are, are speaking with our teacher, Juan Flores Salazar, the shaman. and he's describing the behavior of the Serenas and Yacarunas that live in the Amazon waterways, and it's virtually identical to Homer's account in the Odyssey. Mm. And I asked the maestro, do you know Homer? Have you heard this story before? And he hadn't heard of Homer, but when I described the behavior of the sirens, he said, that's them all right. And that and other really uncanny parallels in the Odyssey, uh, having to do with plant sentience, the Odyssey became like my personal archaeological site. I just got fascinated with it and Mm -hmm. began digging in. And there is a lot of scholarship that's like Walter Burkert, in particular that is fascinating to read. And, And when you... Are able now to um, work with a lot of the ethnology and anthropology, and you know, better understanding of shamanism that we now have, and focus on the Odyssey. You see that, of course, Homer didn't invent this material. We don't even know if Homer even existed as a, a individual. What he was was a transmitter of ancient tradition. The Odyssey is extraordinarily interesting because it is going so deep into the mediterranean bardic tradition that at a certain point it touches the paleolithic cave floor Mm -hmm. we're we're in the realm of the master of animals and we're also i think encountering the opium goddess Of of the Cretans in the character of Circe. But what really, really got my attention was the encounter between the Cyclops, Polyphemus, and Odysseus, and how that encounter seemed to carry that, that same message, that same myth of the break with the original or the indigenous mind that other native indigenous prophecies and teachings have also talked about. What I ended up feeling on reading the encounter between Odysseus and the Cyclops is it's been misread largely down through the centuries because there's been a predisposition to view Polyphemus as this great lumbering brute, just as Odysseus does, and not to question what's Odysseus' worldview. He's a colonizing, conquering, conquistador. Essentially, he's a, a resource scout and he's while one foot of Odysseus is very much in the shamanic world, he's a master at dealing with spirits and negotiating with them. His other foot is right in the the emerging individual pursuit of gain trickery kind of world that the Greeks were birthing. And so when you make this account of how Odysseus, like Westerners have been for hundreds of years now, his disposition to view the Cyclops and his people as uh, primitive brutes, then, you know, you begin to be able to, to see through that layer and to get to what Polyphemus is actually trying to say to Odysseus.
0: This interaction between Odysseus and the Cyclops that Tyndall is talking about involves Odysseus taking a burning hot spike and shoving it through the eye of the Cyclops.
1: When he's blinded by Odysseus with his trickery, Polyphenus invites Odysseus to come back to shore and heal his eye. And if he does that, he will bless Odysseus's journey home. And where the scholarship has gone wrong, in my opinion, is they've seen that as just a transparent ploy of the Cyclops to bash Odysseus' brains out when he comes to shore. But there's no reason to think that. He's he's sincere. And if, you know, we understand these ancient Mediterranean materials, which I think some of them are as old as the cave paintings. Yeah. In the, you know, in the temple sanctuaries, uh, the underground, you know, temples of, of uh, the Paleolithic people, if we understand this as a message that maybe even Homer didn't completely understand, maybe he's transmitting it for a future time. And if we give the credit to Polyphemus, he's saying, "You heal me, my indigenous worldview. You know, you you respect this way of being with the earth and the people of it, the animistic worldview, the, you know, the shamanic worldview, which has nurtured and allowed human beings to flourish for." years, I'll bless your path into modernity, I'll bless your voyage onward. But it's no longer about the individual Cyclops and the individual Odysseus, it's about Odysseus as a, a representative of all of emerging modern humanity, and Polyphemus as a representative all the indigenous people that are going to bear the brunt of that. And the opportunity for the blessing is lost because Odysseus just cries back a curse at, uh, at Polyphemus and, and uh, says, I'd rather see you in the depths of Hades and come to shore to heal your eye.
0: The notion of a misunderstood cyclops is not so far out there. Many times in myths, creatures with one leg or one eye are invoked as an indication of primal connection to the divine, and perhaps of an older time when human beings were more unified with nature. Across Indo-European mythology we find one-legged beings and even one-legged divinities, and the pervading message is of oneness before a great separation, wholeness one column to the divine, one leg, one unified vision of the cosmos, one eye. This vision of a prior culture at one with nature is reflected in Homer's description of the culture of the Cyclops, that they, quote, Trust so to the everlasting gods they never plant with their own hands or plow the soil, Unsown, unplowed, the earth teems with all they need. This vision of a time when humans were not separate from the cosmos and nature, but in communication through song and meditation and direct interactions with and knowledge of plants, through the experience of animal shape shifting and trance, this vision of shamanic experience is the substrate of Greek myth that often gets ignored by Western scholars because until recently they haven't been versed in the animistic or shamanistic worldview. I
1: had a lot of resistance when I first started presenting this part of the shamanic odyssey ended up being published in a in an academic journal and i went through peer review and all but man <laughs> oh boy <laughs>
0: oh i can um, imagine
1: <laughs> they, they don't they don't want to get out of their ivory towers they don't want to go there they, they want to analyze then
0: and you know i mean this is what i come back to with all myth is that it was sung out of direct experience and it was sung out of direct experience with nature and You know, if you're an academic Mm -hmm. pouring over words on a page, you you can skip right over Mm -hmm. the olive tree and the laurel and just Mm -hmm. think, oh, Mm -hmm. like, that's, that's interesting. They're putting in a reference to a tree. You know, if you've had more of a direct interaction through plant medicine or through extended time in nature Mm -hmm. or through meditation, Mm -hmm. what have you, of really what is being invoked when people are invoking plants and animals. It's a whole different vision of myth.
1: Yeah, it, it restores its life. I almost quit graduate school when we did, when we did uh, my Shakespeare seminar. And mm-hmm. uh, instead of trying to understand what made Shakespeare so amazing, uh, I found that we were putting him on a dissection table and uh, uh, cutting him up. I finally found, interestingly enough, I finally found the best interpreter of Shakespeare's mythopaic power in Sri Aurobindo.
2: Hmm.
1: The Indian sage, I found a little book of his at his ashram called Sri Aurobindo on Shakespeare, where Aurobindo takes into account consciousness. And, you know, of course, Aurobindo had this profoundly subtle nuance understanding of consciousness, but again, if you don't have any familiarity with the terrain of consciousness that Shakespeare was traversing in his writing, what chance have you got of having scholarship that really captures... I mean, you can have great books on them, but you can't get to his essence without that. And you, you can't get to the essence of these myths, these ancient myths, unless you yourself have some kind of grasp of the mythopaic worldview.
0: We're getting at something here, about the power of oral tradition. Shakespeare's writing was a shell for what was meant to be performed. The Odyssey was sung. Tolkien is chock-full of songs. I asked Tyndall about song. In the book, you talk about the power of song to, to presence and to transport... And I mean, obviously, you speak of your experience in the vegetalista traditions. What is this power of song?
1: What my elders have demonstrated for me, explained, and and, uh, what I've experienced is there's a distinction that exists in permeable consciousness. And a good example is when we look at the art from, say, the Paleolithic period or if you are to go into the temple at Chavin de Huantar and enter the labyrinth and go in and behold the Laka, the um, sacred being, which is like this carved figure that's still in place at the heart of that ancient temple in the Andes, when you behold this art or you hear this song, when you're in a permeable state of consciousness, in, in other words, you're not here and it's out there, there's no subject and object of vision When you have experience of this kind of, I'll just call it art, what you're encountering is a living being. I can't explain it. What I've learned from my teachers is that in Sacred Song, it's something like Frodo experiences in the halls of Elrond When he hears the song, which is being sung there uh, in praise of the pure land beyond the ocean, he's transported there. It's not that it's a representation of something else. It, it's not like the artist who puts the easel down in front of him, looks at his canvas and says, I will represent this flower upon this canvas, and it'll be pretty or profound or whatever. It's not that. It is the, it is the spirit of the flower. It's the intelligence. It's the being and the aliveness, the consciousness of this being, which the song is at the same time. And this is what, you know, is transmitted in these lineages, both in the Native American church and in the Vecitalista lineage, is when you receive egotos or a peyote song, they are not about something, they are something.
0: Here's the passage from Tolkien Tyndall was referring to in which Frodo encounters the power of elvish song. Quote, At first the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell. Almost it seemed that the words took shape, and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him. And the firelit hall became like a golden mist above the seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike, until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. This living, animate presence of song was the foundation of the Greek bardic traditions. It is the foundation of the ichoros or sacred invocations within the vegetalista traditions which Tyndall references. It is the foundation of both mantra and bhajan within Indian tradition. The myths, the stories, the songs are sonic. Sound, song is a doorway. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you hear a song, you don't have to stop and think about what a song represents. The song takes you there. It transports you. This is why the Tungus shamans speak of learning to ride their drums into the spirit world. This transportive ability of song is also the subject of my young adult fantasy novel, The Sword and the Song. Here's a passage. Look, my lad. What is a song, really? Every song has a specific pattern of waves. Everything else in the universe works the same way. Light is waves, water is waves, matter is waves. So all places in the universe have their very own pattern of waves, their very own specific song. If you know the song to each place and can sing it, and I'm not talking about most Terran singing, I'm talking about true song, then, by the minstrel's lyre, that's where you go yes i'm i'm smiling to myself because for me what you're talking about is is the heart of it all you know in like the the tantric traditions the the mantra the the sonic invocation isn't about the deity it is the deity the, the yantra, the, the sacred diagram, is not representing the deity. It is the deity. And, you know, I think like what you're saying, I mean, this goes right back to the caves where, you know, those paintings aren't um, representational. They're direct energetic mm-hmm. transmissions.
1: Yeah. If you want to hear a lovely account about a scientist. You know, who's, who's, uh, of course, you know, deeply predisposed to the so-called objective worldview in the caves. Uh, watch Werner Herzog's, uh, uh Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And mm. there's a marvelous interview he does with a researcher who was first inside Chauvet. I mean, it, it was incredible the way that cave was encountered and opened up in an utterly pristine state. And he had to cease going down into the caves for a while because his dreams of uh, the lions that he was seeing on the cave walls were becoming so powerful that he, he had to get some distance in order to digest and, and absorb it. And when Herzog questioned him about the nature of the dreams, the fellow said, no, it was the lions.
0: As people got further and further from the direct experience of this living source, the myths, stories, and songs became seen as representational. The animistic heart got further away and harder to grasp. We talked about this in relation to Zen Buddhism, which Tyndall practiced for many years.
1: At a certain point, I came to see that the way we were receiving the transmission of the Zen lineage, Robert Aiken's... Lineage is called the Sambo Kyodan from wonderful teachers in Japan. But it was curious to me to see later to understand how Roshi was a very deep humanistic thinker and how Western Buddhism has tended to throw out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that while yes, we are going to honor this aspect of the tradition, we're not gonna fully recognize the animistic world view totally of our ancestors you know we're not we're not going to like we're going to say these prayers but we're not going to mean it
0: i mean it's interesting because in zen in in the stories and in the koans there's such an animistic view and oh, it, God, yeah. it's so present it's funny that you say that because i was actually just I'm doing on an, an episode on consciousness, and you know what's the quote-unquote real state of consciousness, and how what we call normal waking consciousness, you know, Paleolithic people might not have even recognized as normal waking consciousness. And in doing so, I was reading the Zen koan uh, "Say and her soul are separated," which is really a story about the the dream state and the vision state. That aspect of it doesn't get emphasized in the modern Western commentary.
1: Or like Hyakujo's Fox, too. You know, the animal transformation that's going on in that.
0: Hyakujo's Fox is a wonderful story in which a monk is asked by his teacher if the enlightened person is above the cycle of death and rebirth. Of course, enlightenment is meant to be beyond cause and effect, so naturally, Hyakujo answers, the enlightened person is beyond death and rebirth. And for this answer, he's transformed into a fox and made to live as a fox for many lifetimes. Is it a sentence or is it a gift? The fox body, with its keen senses and bristling whiskers, may have lessons for us in terms of elevated consciousness. And he enjoyed, yeah. he enjoyed his lifetimes as a fox, which I always loved. Exactly. And that. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. I would
0: <laughs> too. <But> totally. <laughs> Speaking of animal transformation, you talk about in the book the the twenty thousand year history of imagery of of human beings transforming into animals and specifically into felines or lions. And there's such a strong tradition of this in cultures around the world. Uh, What do you make of this, this experience, which seems to be very fundamental to human societies everywhere, this experience of the transformation into an animal?
1: Yeah, I should add um, that uh, I've been spending a lot of time with Norse materials lately, Icelandic sagas and, and um, other works. And they took animal transformation very seriously as well. The Hamrammer, uh was the skin changer, the one who could put on the pelt of the wolf and become the wolf. And they distinguished between those who could do it voluntarily and involuntarily. And it was just part of their worldview. Yeah. I mean, you go into these Icelandic accounts and they will mention it like going out and buying a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know, oh yeah, and by the way, he was a skin changer. Yeah, and uh, okay. So it's been with us, it seems from the beginning, we want to commune, like Tolkien said, there are two primal desires that human beings have, to commune with other beings and to see into the depths of time and space. about South American the high civilizations that developed down there is they were quite clear that, you know, they would usually have an ancestor that was a jaguar. And if you go and you look at the iconography of the temple like Chavin de Lampar, which is incredibly well preserved, one of the things that was fairly well preserved was around the uh, outside of the temple, these huge heads, carvings of heads were set in the walls and it seems clear that what they depicted was the transformation of a human being into a cat, mm. stage by stage. Mm. There's some mystery here. There's some deep mystery. I think that we're uncomfortable with that because, as the anthropologist Federica Marguin points out, there's a kind of taboo of consciousness that Western culture has, and what it says is you will be human and only human. You can't be a tree as well, you can't be a jaguar, you can't be a fox.
0: The sense in many of the major world religions is that to be animal would be less, that humans are higher on the hierarchy. This is an interesting contrast with the traditions that actually interact more closely with animals, who often see animals as manifestations of source itself, and so to be animal is actually to be in a heightened state of consciousness. As you can probably tell, I could have talked to this guy for quite a long time. I mean, how often do I get to talk about paleolithic cave art, animal transformation, zen koans, plant medicine, Tolkien, bardic Indo-European traditions, the transportive power of song in the course of one conversation? But there's one final thing I wanted to hear about from Tyndall, how this imaginative vision, this animate view of the cosmos can help a world that is facing massive issues.
1: I'm reading a great book called Underland right now by Robert McFarlane. And at a certain point he says, uh, now that we've chosen the end time, you know, now that we're officially on it, it, it seems like as a as a civilization, we've said, now we prefer to commit suicide. Mm. No, thank you. We'll die. And I know there are all kinds of counter arguments to that and and they're valid. But it feels like we're entering into a new myth. And I'm filled with grief mm-hmm. i'm I'm working very hard to create a sanctuary in Mendocino where my daughter can be safe and other beings, uh, including the trees that are there, the soil, the water, the animals can be safe and you know we're we're going to face a lot of new disease, a lot of fire rising water collapse of infrastructures in the next hundred years and you know, I, I feel like through all of this, we need to walk with open eyes. Instead of throwing in the towel, we need to wake up more. Yeah. Because each thing we, we do, you know, what the Hopi say is like, when every moment becomes prayer, you're going to know you're in the great purification. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are going to be beings to say, there is going to be work to do, love to get transmitted, like things to the next generation, seeds to protect. You know, these days, I, I don't distinguish prayer from states of consciousness. I feel like our prayer to the Holy One is what keeps us on track with the big picture. And I don't mean to sound monotheistic or polytheistic or anything like that. I just mean opening ourselves up radically again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. I, I don't think that a single human being can change the big picture world picture i was listening to a talk of stefan harrod booner a while back and he was saying you know it's, it's like trying to change the course of the titanic by sticking a straw in the water it's too huge what we've got going on here but um our prayer our intention our awareness meditation consciousness what we evoke and work on manifesting every day i think is where the future is going to happen from yeah and you know um i want to bring in booner one more time um I love listening to him and reading him because it always feels like I'm hearing a future iteration of myself somehow. You know, it's like, he's one of the few writers about consciousness and, uh, you know, in plants and human beings whose work I I just find deeply stimulating. And he distinguished in a recent interview between hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. You know, optimism is that hey, you know, we can do something that's going to make this all come out well. And hope is based more on faith. I mean, hope is based on faith. You know, he made the point that we we really are losing reason for optimism at this point. There's very little reason to be optimistic now. And yet hope is not Pollyanna. It's not... It's not naive. It's not what happens when optimism fails, but instead it's deeper, it's better grounded in reality. I really like that.
0: Yeah, I, I, share, I share that view, you know, which kind of brings us full circle to The Lord of the Rings, or at least in the movies anyway, they had quite an emphasis on on hope. That ability of Tolkien to see the star shining always is something that's inspired me throughout my life.
1: We also have Jiminy Cricket, you know, singing When You Worship Upon a Star. And that's the kind of optimistic, you know, world model of Disney that our culture is steeped in, right? When You Worship upon a Star. And in Tolkien, one of the moments where that starlight penetrating through is in the very darkest realm, when they're in Shelob's lair, isn't it? Yeah. And Frodo finds her holy name. Erupting from his mouth. Mm. And I think it flares the lamp of Galadriel because she has the light of that star in the lamp. Mm. And it, it's what saves their lives. And that brings us right down to that distinction we've been talking about this whole time, which is this, the song, the word, the element is the Holy One. It's not you wish upon some distant thing and all your dreams will come true. No, it's not optimistic. It's this star at its core this word this song is the holy one it's a sacred realm
0: This episode contains references to several books, movies, articles, classics. Underland by Robert McFarland, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, the phenomenal documentary by Werner Herzog, The Odyssey, of course, and Tyndall recommends the Robert Fagel's translation. J.R.R. R. Tolkien, On Fairy Stories, Smith of Wooten Major, and of course, Lord of the Rings. Stefan Herod Buhner author of over 23 books. And the Zen koans Hyakujo's fox and Say and her soul are separated, which can be found in Zen comments on the Mumonkan. And I almost forgot The Sword and the Song, a young adult fantasy novel you've never read because it hasn't been published yet. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.